that was kind of the, as it were, story that people wanted to be told about environmental legislation. It is not something that impacts economic growth. It's something that companies could choose to do and you can sell stuff for more and there's a whole new field of value. that you end up with a, a, a politics that ends up being increasingly symbolic and non-material, whereas the actual real things that affect the material elements of society are hidden away in these technical bureaucracies that are managing these risks. We demand sustainability, but we don't get to have any say on what the sustainability standards are or how they're made. This type of design and this type of development is leading to us becoming increasingly disconnected from the natural world. We are living in these hermetically sealed containers which have the air filtered of all the pollen of all the potential pollutants. We have different light spectrums so we don't have to rely on the sun. Ultimately what you're trying to do is re-engineer the human. to the Three Ecologies podcast. This is part two of our conversation with James Sheldon on ecological modernization. In part one, James told us about the emergence of office buildings in wake of the financial deregulation of the 1980s and how private developers started using sustainability benchmarks to create new frontiers for profit making. So definitely check out part one of this episode for the historical background. In part two of this episode, we explore a recent shift in the green building discourse away from energy efficiency towards health and well-being. With the reduction of carbon emissions losing its competitive edge on the market, developers, companies, and even entire boroughs are now embracing the idea of human-friendly environments in their bid to revive struggling economies. We explore the political and social implications of such attempts to resurrect the profitability of the green transition through this pivot to improving human performance. all sorts of different things. It wasn't just about uh, carbon dioxide emissions or energy efficiency or so on. It was also about preventing Legionnaire's disease and uh, moderating wind in the particular neighborhood and so on. But as this uh, rating becomes successful, it loses steam, right? It no longer has the cachet that it sort of has. So it, it has to be rewritten what it what it was once about by the same people who are both burying it and relying upon it at the same time. So when like the building research establishment and its new partners of the World Green Building Council are saying, okay, the the BREAM accomplished what we need to accomplish, but it had a very narrow 
definition of green. The, the World Green Building Council wrote this complex relationship between health, well-being, productivity, and green building points to a need to reinterpret, some might say rescue, the term green from an association purely with the environmental movement. The goal should be buildings that maximize benefits for people and leave the planet better off as well. And you have, you have this movement which both relies upon the success and the failure of Briam at the same time to reinvent this new well rating, um, W-E-L-L, which is primarily geared towards producing the, I was gonna say subjectivity, but it's not only subjectivity, it's also about optimal physical performance as well. Thermal comfort, the amount of daylight that they're getting, the amount of noise that they're exposed to, and so on. And this is all reinvented as green in a way that, yeah, as I said, it, it, it relies upon the previous successes, but also plays up many of the previous failures of it as well. What also seems to be happening is that they're, they're playing up the extent to which Briam and LEED actually helped to reduce carbon dioxide emissions and, and so on and resource use. And they, they sort of say, oh, so we've accomplished all of these environmental goals so far. And what we have to do now is really shift to a new understanding of green that puts emphasis on uh, human capabilities. But the reality is the reason they're shifting is because they seem to have run into a bit of a block as well in terms of uh, not having the technical or institutional frameworks in place to really make significant brain breakthroughs in terms of carbon emission. within the context of BREAM, the brokers of that type of sustainable revolution within office building um, always needed, of course, uh, practically, pragmatically to emphasize the return of investment, right? That this idea that this will pay for itself within X years, sort of the, this might cost you a little bit more, but the energy efficiency, which you gain from it will will uh, pay back the investment within a short time. But then at some point, I guess this sort of the market gets saturated. So Bream becomes the new norm in a sense. So what's the competitive edge to it anymore? And so then the market is saturated. That market of green building is saturated. So you need to sort of, you need to find a new frontier for what can, how can we rescue the green, the term green as, as the quote that will um, read out, how can the term green be rescued from its, from its, uh, from the state, from the stale and sort of unprofitable hole that it's been plunged into. And then people look at the, at the costs of, 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 of companies and they realize actually only like a percent is, is energy costs of their expenditure and 90% is staff costs. So they're like, oh, if we can associate green building with reducing staff costs and not just energy costs, this can be a much better argument in terms of return of investment. Mm-hmm. 
an idea that's created by um, this mode of regulation, and it's what's called eco ecological modernization. It's the idea that sustainability is something of value. And so when we design things that are sustainable, we create whole new fields of value. The idea of this unveiling green economy, and there's a whole, as it were, potentially infinite series of fields of potential value that can be found uh, for economic growth. And whereas previously economic growth came from fulfilling all our material needs, now infinite economic growth can be found within the field of securing or making more sustainable the planet, whatever that means. And what I try to show with this is that the value that was supposedly gained by, you know, people would pay more for these sustainable buildings, but what were they actually paying for? What were they actually paying more for? Why were they paying more money for it? And so people started researching that question. And I kind of show that as that discourse moves forward, more, you know, more research done on this. There's these big industry papers that are produced talking about what the real value of Priam is. Steadily, it comes out that, well, actually, there's not much any the energy costs you do save some money but it's not that big a deal yes maybe it has a slight effect on your stock market valuation because people go oh they're green that's a good thing you get but not really what really has an effect is your workers like the building more and are more productive now what aspects of a design lead to that and so you get this like recursive unveiling of what are the actual objects of value that kind of come out of that and ultimately yes yeah, you say you end up with this this idea that re-engineering and what's interesting about this as well is ultimately what you're trying to do is re-engineer the human we are putting in lights which have different kinds of color spectrums to affect our circadian cycles now in some ways this is a really good thing many people suffer from what is called seasonal affective disorder in northern uh latitudes yeah, for example i mean if you're from i don't know in the uk people certainly get it but you it's much more highly reported in scandinavian countries having things like blue circadian lighting in the middle of winter might have a significant effect on that there's quite a bit of evidence showing that triggering someone's circadian cycle with blue light early in the morning and blue light is the light that sort of uh, triggers your brain to stop producing melatonin and that's right. Yeah, melatonin, and and thereby melatonin is the is the the hormone which makes you sleepy, and so your brain stops producing it, and it significantly can wake you up more, which actually has a real effect on mental health. So these these things aren't all, as it were, um, negative, oppressive, oppressive things. This can lead to much much better workplaces, etc. But I think the question is, what is the intention of this occurring, and what kind of outcomes it leading to because it's all happening very quickly and it doesn't seem it's not something that is democratically decided or discussed it's something that's happening in this sort of like blind, uh, sort of uh, blind field of technological advancement and it will have significant effects on people spend in the report talks about this you know the building industry loves this statistic people spend 90 percent of their time indoors the predominant ecology in which we live is the indoor ecology what happens to us when the single ecology changes so much? And yes, maybe this will make people happier, but maybe if we were outside more, that would be better as well. In a way, what I'm arguing as well is that this type of design, 
and this type of development is leading to us becoming increasingly disconnected from the natural world. We are living in these hermetically sealed containers, which have the air filtered of all the pollen of all the potential pollutants. We have different light spectrums, so we don't have to rely on the sun. All these things increasingly disconnect us from the natural world that surrounds us. And there's an awkward question that I don't raise, but I think is raised by this. Why do we need the natural world then, if we can produce the ideal environment for ourselves inside? present this really interesting graphic, another one from the World Green Building Council, which I think that we can put up in a clip um, or, or link to, but it it talks about eight features that make healthier and greener offices. One of them is biophilia and views. Healthy offices have a wide variety of plant species uh, inside and out, as well as views of nature from workspaces. And then it gives a little bit of a justification of that. And it says there's a seven to 12% improvement in processing time at one call center when staff had a view of nature. <laughs> and it's like, it's so cynical because a call center is probably one of the worst places you can think of. And what is the nature that the staff have a view of there? Um, but so I think that that's a, a really fascinating question. But another one of them is the, the way in which this new form of healthy building design is a way of unlocking potential forms of collaboration within the office. So the, there's been a lot said about the open plan office and how it allows for new forms of cooperation. And as we know from Marx, uh, inducing cooperation is one of the main avenues for the, the production of relative surplus value. But it also says that a different interior layout and active design, including flexible workspaces, help staff feel more in control of their workload and it engenders loyalty. And I thought that that was fascinating as well, is that it, you, you, can, you can have somehow loyalty produced through the production of space. I think one of the really important backdrops to this is that I think many of the crises that they are addressing, governments are just simply overwhelmed by. If you talk about and sort of these framings of mental health or happiness, and I really like how you pointed out the ambiguity of this, James, because it's so difficult to criticize an employer who wants to promote health, uh, mental health and happiness and loyalty of their of their of their employees, because it seems so not 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 even only innocent, but but benevolent. Right. But there seems to be something sinister in it, obviously, which is that many of these framings which have which have become sort of dominant semiotic species you could kind of talk about it in that way that we think in terms of mental health that this term of mental health or this ter these terms of performance and i mean the way in which you at least pick up on some of the pieces of the research the way in which health and performance are produced as uh, semiotic tools which drive a whole uh, a whole industry, but also very, very 
technical appliances like light bulbs, like uh, air conditioning and so on, um, that, that these are processes which are no, which our democratic institutions seem to be overwhelmed with, right? And so it's very, uh, if you're overwhelmed with such a problem and there are some developers, there are some associations which, whether they have a government contract or whether in hindsight, they're sort of reintegrated into government processes, but they give you solutions to this. They say, the problem is mental health and the solution is better working conditions. And you could even think of the next stage being something like introducing a sense of and 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 you would you would use of course the technical language of entropy or of like sort of like introducing the right kind of pollen into your air, you know, so that you're also more resilient to uh, seasonal flu, whatever, you know, like you could think of there, but you open this infinite space of of uh, uh, you, you, from this tiny foot in the door, you open this almost infinite space of production, right? You have another company that produces the perfect ventilation system, which microdoses the right kind kind of um, uh, essential oils and and toxins that that then prepare you already for the flu season ahead so that you don't you you don't miss working days and you're healthier so it's great isn't it and then you look at that and you're like huh this i don't know it's because i think the the aim of criticizing it is never to sort of say it was better when everyone just got sick in november you know <laughs> and when yeah. when half the office was was away This is what is what exactly what exactly is the critical edge. I think um, one of the things that I think I would hasten to add to what you're saying, and I agree essentially with, with everything you said. I think it's, it's extremely interesting. One of the things I would add is the fact that so much of this is so speculative. Like, will you quote a statistic? Seven to twelve percent improvement in processing time. Like, what? I can see a tree, and then people make calls quicker. Like, I don't know, it just seems quite absurd. And like, so a lot of this type of research is incredibly questionable science. There's all these studies showing supposed improvements uh, it, it, when you have certain low amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere, in, in, in the internal environment. And, you know, externally, we have about, not now, contemporarily, about 402 parts per million of CO2. And they go, oh, well, now you know, you have uh, inter internally, it'll be closer to 800, 900, maybe 1,000 in a, you know, normal, well-ventilated office. If we have super high ventilation rates, or we can get that down to even less than that, you know, maybe 600, is there a performance difference? And so you have, but these studies are done with 20 people in these isolated laboratories and they all oh, look we've shown a slight effect on these cognitive scores using this specific type of performance cognitive study and it's incredibly um speculative and i think that's what i say about most of this 
types of things we're going we're going to produce this infinite this new field of value as you say of reverse engineering conditions that make individuals more productive at work and thereby as you say increasing the value production from firm i think it's speculative for two reasons the first reason is because is it even actually having that effect on people's performance and to know that you have to monitor things how is people's bodies actually responding are the conditions inside these spaces actually what we designed them to be? And I think that field, that question of that realization field, how do we actually know how this stuff is functioning on that effect? That is part of the motivation for the spread of lots of smart devices. I think this is leading to the spread of a type of smart city technology is the question of how do we get the information to ascertain whether these interventions are creating value or not? It's a realization problem. And I think that's why we is is why there's this huge spread of the desire to measure all this stuff. But it's speculative for another reason as well, which is, is the question of value production the question of how productive we are? Like in my job, if I did the analysis 10 times quicker, or even not 10 times quicker, that would be absurd. But if I did this analysis a couple of times quicker, would that mean as a company we make more money? Well, not really. It might just mean we do more analysis on a given building. Would that make it better? Well, maybe, maybe not. You know, it doesn't necessarily scale like that. Is people's value related to the number of tasks they do per second? In a traditional factory, yes. I don't know. Does this, I think so. there's a really interesting, there's two speculative natures to it. One, will this really have any of these effects on how the human, how we actually live in these spaces? And the other side of it is, even if it has and improves our hypothetical performance, to what extent does that actually affect the value we created? like that line and 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 i would kind of say that to some extent maybe also we have to look at value as being speculative itself right um and so this kind of maybe segues us back into this question of research and producing knowledge producing even scientific knowledge right so there's still um and 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 i would say especially with i i, I would my assumption would be that a place like a call center is actually in some ways the perfect test bed for some of this scientific evaluation. And you talk about how the whole notion of research, of academic research, moves towards this evaluative um, framing where I would say, I would stipulate that science has a, attains a slightly different function or maybe it was never otherwise, but it fulfills the function of, it doesn't just ascertain something, but evaluations are also have a performative dimension as well, right? If there is, if there is a certain scientific approval of something that might mean access to certain things, that might mean that might mean that you now qualify for a certain standard certification. You so these benchmarks that are introduced also rely on clearly still speculative um, claims about uh, performance enhancement, but to some extent, I would say there is almost like a maybe to some extent like a financial placebo effect as well, where if 
if this becomes sort of you have to be to use a a, a, a term from Pinchon to to be on the bleeding edge, uh, you have to be on the you don't just have to be on the cutting edge, but you have to be on that like you you really have to you have to bet on these speculative things whether you're a real estate developer right whether you're a certain borough or a certain council or a certain area of a city because there's so much competition and the profit margins have become so small that you kind of have to bet on one horse or another otherwise you go down and so if that chance comes around and you have certain scientific bodies which say based on research which isn't I'm not saying it's not truth, but it's maybe to use a Foucauldian phrase, it's certain, it has certain truth effects, you know? It's a certain type of research which says based on our, and it can even be statistically significant and all these kinds of things, but as you bring up, there are always contingencies to the research and maybe it is based in a certain uh, environment which might not be the same environment as the one you apply it to. So can you even rely on these productive effects? Can you, and the, the, the absurdity of saying a seven to 9% increase in productivity. And, but I would say that there isn't, it has an effect that then turns into certain claims that the property developer can make and say, we produce to these standards. And then that gets wrapped up into an idea of human friendly office space or healthy office spaces, which then gets turned into your ability as a company, if you rent out that office space to attract certain talent, which might have all sorts of effects where at the end of the day, maybe it's not even so important anymore, whether it really confirms that initial scientific claim, but to some extent, it works. It, it produces real effects in the world. It has truth effects. It changes the landscape of a borough. It changes the... And so these claims cannot be entirely arbitrary. And so you have to have certain institutional power. You have to have certain statistical power. So you have to have purchase uh, behind them. But I would say it's not necessarily about those claims actually cashing out um weirdly i don't know if that makes sense yeah i think it does make sense and i would agree with when i take a Foucaultian view through a lot of the thesis and i agree that these things do have effects and in a way i think the science is performing a kind of function an ideological function a way of we can't just say this place is nicer because we think it's nicer this is a way of sort of like giving it a very like, we've got numbers and statistics and science to say it's this percentage much nicer for you and this will generate this much value. The reason why I think the value formation is important though and why that leads to the spread of smart technology is because that's the core proposition of the regulation and the core valuation of it is this will generate value for your company and that will have to get tested and it will get tested and people have to have ways of researching it. And they will demand that the research has certain kinds of truth conditions and they will want it to be measured, you know? So there's, for example, I think it's fascinating this, uh, like quite this like a uh, Latourian concept, the idea of how a laboratory spreads out of a laboratory into the world. And I think this is so true in the case of these buildings. Um, the kind of monitoring that existed with like the nine in the 1990s for when they were researching these conditions and the effects that they have on people 
you know, we're going to monitor the temperature, we're going to monitor the humidity, we're going to monitor the VOC content of the air, we're going to monitor the PM10 and all these different types of pollutants you get in air and all these different technical measures. And that's exactly what is being put into offices now. Wirelessly linked up as data recorders back to constant, you know, time-based sampling and it comes back and companies have a dashboard of all different locations and they can monitor where this goes and there's a building in Amsterdam uh oh, <laughs> oh the one the really modern one the one that's called with all the fucking glass I thought it no no oh Google search for Amsterdam water building <laughs> that's Literally, what I'm doing. Edge, the edge. It works. <laughs> Seriously, just Google Amsterdam Health World being building. But there's this building called Edge, which is um, who is housed in Edge? I think is it PwC, one of these other large tax avoiding firms. Oh, I don't think it turns Deloitte. That's it. Deloitte of uh, I knew it was one of the uh, large big four accountancy tax avoiding firms. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the most sustainable, best bream ratings and so on, or at least, at least that's what they say. But what I found so interesting uh, when you're talking about the um, building in Slough is that it barely fulfilled any of the bream. So what is the word I'm looking for? Conditions yeah, credits. Or, yeah, yeah. Or, uh, credits, exactly. So it said... Uh, the project performs poorly in most of the material measurements of sustainability, achieving eight out of 21 under the energy category and actually claiming zero out of 12 for energy demand reductions over national standards. Yeah, I am pretty savage. And you know, I didn't, yeah. know, I didn't actually know that this building was going to be such a perfect, what I'm basically arguing is the fact that, yeah, We've got this really high energy type of building and we're switching to health and well-being in this really speculative way. And sustainability is just covered by this black box of Brian, you know. So we've got this nice symbolic symbol that says, oh, look, we're super sustainable. We'll plant this on. And what's actually happening is that beneath the surface and the actual material effects, nothing's changing. It's business as usual, but we put a big sticker on it and then we put the well-being stickers on because they look good and we'll focus on that because that's where the new value is. That's where the new exciting cutting edges. So I picked a, just the first building that was bought in the UK. Uh, the first one that anyway got a really good building. It had huge press to bought a building. It's, it got a uh, innovation award from BCO, which is a, the major, you know, uh, industry body of, of office specification. They're hugely influential. Um, so yeah, this got a huge, huge press everywhere. And honestly, when I dug into the planning application documents, I did not expect it to be such a perfect case study of exactly what I was arguing. <laughs> yeah, the council obviously wanted this building a lot because no one questioned it.
the standard obviously has has very little bearing on on the things that matter, uh, both when it comes to many aspects of of human health and and well being, but also and perhaps more importantly for the long term when it comes to things like carbon emissions, resource use, etc. So. I guess this question has two parts. Is one of them is how do, for instance, housing movements pressing for a particular council to uh, introduce, you know, this many new sustainable units, and again, net zero is also complicated and probably a little bit of a silly measure in the sense that, you know, buildings don't have to be zero, it just should be very low emissions. And that seems like a bit of a, a distraction in, in many ways as well. But what can actually be pressed for? So that's one of the first questions. And two, how solidified is BREEAM as a rating? Starters, I don't think that BM is completely bankrupted, but I think its priority is different. Its priority was to try to deliver a standard that was very flexible, that would allow lots of different definitions of sustainability to all be enacted. And what I'm basically arguing is the fact that it hasn't got sufficient like uh, bite to actually deliver carbon reductions, which I think are a really central point. And I'm showing that because of its... So it's huge flexibility. It means that actually very bad performing buildings can still get a rating. Now, this building only got Briam Silver, which in the industry, most people know, it's not particularly good. But the problem is the fact that no one else knows that. And it still symbolizes, it still says Briam, it still says it's got a silver rating, silver sounds pretty good. You can probably get gold, never fair, you can, you can get gold, never fairly poorly performing building. I think what I basically argue is that Briam should be more stringent for sure. In terms of can you dislodge BM, I think there's a problem in general with these market-led um, approaches. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at with the overall thesis, which is that when you go for the market-led approach, the only reason why people pursue these optional, you know, would pursue this type of verification is because there's a value proposition to it. And that was kind of the, as it were, story that people wanted to be told about environmental legislation. It is not something that impacts economic growth. It's something that companies could choose to do, and you can sell stuff for more, and there's a whole new field of value. And what I'm kind of arguing here is the fact that, well, no, not really, actually. And I mean, one of the things that Briam has had a huge effect on is practices. People are now used to talking about lots of these sustainability issues integrated into the design process. It has changed industry practices significantly over the period and has been incredibly important in doing so. It wouldn't have happened without it. And now in design engineering professionals, even though they might roll their eyes, and architects are very, very in tune with the idea of, oh, what about the local ecology? How are we impacting on plant species? Oh, what are the effects on the water, on the water ecology? What, you know, so there are issues with it for sure, but I don't think it's something we necessarily want to replace. We need something, an approach to designing, if we are, when we do development, that can integrate many different considerations, which are incredibly complex, into a design process. And these things take a long time to get, as it were, um, institutionally embedded into how people do things, into practices. And when engineers and design professionals or in any type of profession get used to a certain system, 
it's I generally think it's much better to, if possible, develop and evolve that into a better form than to say, well, here's a brand new, completely different system that you've got to try and learn how to follow and you'll have no idea how it works. Yeah, so I think in general, I don't think it's desirable to get rid of BM. I think it's really the question of what role can it play now, given the fact that it has issues being a market-led framework. This is actually a larger question, but you asked a question about how what communities could push for. I think that is a very challenging one. I think one of the things that they could do is follow more active councils. So, for example, the GLA has more resources than most councils. And so the GLA will only develops its own responses to BRIAM and generally puts in bespoke and difficult bespoke conditions into planning requirements, but also fiddles with how it interprets the national regulations, which which are, which are in, in energy efficiency regulations is a document called Part L, which is a part of the building regulations that deals with energy efficiency. Um, and they have their own bespoke way of interpreting that and saying, actually, we need to use Partel this way and they have an energy hierarchy to do so. I think other councils could follow London's lead. But there is a challenge of doing this is that there are costs. And in, you know, in a, the today's, uh, as it were, creative or competitive um, development environment, local councils are trying to attract developers I mean, the major reason why uh, Slough would be so excited about the Porter Building, and I think would never, didn't put much critique onto the energy strategy, was they were developing, redeveloping the heart of Slough around the extension of Crossrail, which is a new rail line that's supposed to have opened two years ago in London, but it's been delayed. Um, still not open, and it's costing lots and lots of extra money. But that goes straight through Slough. And so suddenly Slough property prices boomed and the council had a chance around the new train station to redevelop and have been trying to bring in new offices and, you know, regenerate the area somewhat. This is a, for them, attracting this type of building is, as I say, a way of attracting a new class of creative individuals, a way of attracting this development. Councils aren't going to be particularly minded to push for what could be potentially very expensive environmental legislation. Uh, environmental, incredibly prescriptive environmental measures. And it's not really clear that they can. You know, I don't know. I think that's a very interesting question as to whether or not the agency exists at the local level to try to do so. to I, I think my intuition there is that just traditional 
democratic institutions are just simply overwhelmed with these crises, right? Because there are these overlapping crises of, of, of reproduction, of social reproduction, of mental reproduction, and of environmental reproduction. And I think to some extent, the cutting edge of industry within the hyper-saturated, hyper-capitalized world, uh, whether global north or global south, will be the sort of competition for designing the remedies for some of these crises, right? And there will there will be new models every 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 couple of years. And for some reason, for me, um, kind of zooming out a little bit, like two sort of cliches that came to mind for me is on the one hand, this like. Uh, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice kind of thing where you could, where you, as, as you just said, that you could take this approach that you say, okay, it's not perfect, but at least we're on the right track and people are starting to think differently and designers now take into consideration the like local species that they're displacing or whatever. To some extent, that's probably also overestimated through like discursive practices are over amplified but okay there is this sort of there is sometimes a hopeful naivete to some extent that like okay we might not hit the target right away but we're moving in the right direction at least and and the other cliche that comes to mind is like achilles and the turtle this 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 notion where it feels like a lot of the proposed solutions are really a mistake a sort of a logical error at at the level of the achilles and the turtle paradox where you just you constantly have to change scale to keep up this illusion of progress or of like achilles never quite catches the turtle but that's only because you change the frame of reference all the time and so I think what I really love about this conversation is that the whole world in a grain of sand, starting with this very particular case and this almost technical analysis of uh, different benchmarks, these different products, these discursive constructs, which have a scientific aspect, which have a other kind of discursive and semiotic aspects, and which become established practice, which come out of the private sector. And then from the UK, sort of, a, there's there are definitely neo-colonial tendencies within this as well. I mean, there's no question that uh, some sort of like privately held building standard within some small, within some smaller city in like Africa or, or Latin America would ever have that sort of impact on on material, real practices throughout the world would never have these ripples. So, I mean, the um, British Empire might be might be dead in one sense, but the sort of the knowledge hegemony is still thinking, especially of the types of the research bodies involved with that. Whether it's uh, certain British universities which certify these things, but then also the research agencies and so on. There's still a lot of purchase, which has real material consequences. The same way that. During colonialism, the British Empire had real material consequences in faraway places. But what this very particular case really highlights is the way in which the theme of the green, green revolution, green development, sustainable development or whatever, these types of discourses are deployed in order to avert crises of overproduction which overproduction of uh, of office space really is the is the is the case at hand but in many ways uh, are at, are oftentimes the 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 kind of the last hope of branches of industry or companies within a branch of industry but even entire 
economic systems that are at the verge of collapse, basically. And I mean, you could think very much one of the themes which I really want to explore within this larger context, and I could see you being really interested in that as well, is the way in which the Great Reset, which is this project by the World Economic Forum, is a way in which the the big at the very big stage the big players bank of england mastercard and these kinds of these kinds of players that even the royal family and whatever are coming together to deploy the crises uh, of um, whether they are um, now with the coronavirus, but also environmental crises. And I'm sure that like mental health and there are so many frontiers in that sense. And so what I think is really interesting there is how this entire semiotic hinge of green and environmental and these kinds of things becomes essential to, to, to relaunch struggling economies. is the ideology of um, ecological modernization, as you say. The idea is that the green, or the green as a discursive field, or health as a discursive field, all these uh, different kinds of discursive fields produce a type of uh, raw material, as it were, a type of potential field inside of which new types of demand, new categories of demand, and hence new categories of production and hence new types of economy can go up. It is a way of rejuvenating the economy. And it's it, when you read any of the sort of like, you know, the sort of uh, Green New Deal to an extent optimists, the Green New Deal is actually very, very much like this. It, in fact, they even, that's why they branded it the Green New Deal. It is, we are going to do a new deal like the uh, Rooseveltian New Deal where we as it were, rejuvenate a broken and fragmented capitalist order into one which delivers on certain kinds of societal outcomes that we'd like to see, you know, delivering greater employment, delivering clean air, delivering green, these green jobs, etc. Um, it is not an attempt to challenge a, as it were, capitalist mode of production. It is an attempt to um, shift that capitalist mode of production to one that is more uh, state-led to an extent, or at least for a time state-led. I think, I mean, I don't disagree with that in terms of the fact that it's necessary for it to be state-led. I think to me it's rather clear that the market, when you see it in this, in this instance as well, when I'm one of the points I argue later on is that the actual thing that was changing building performance was Partel and then the London plan. It was actually national regulation that was enforced. You have to do this. And the market goes, oh, well, I guess we'll do it then. 
because you have to do this. And, and that and actually what changes how people act. And that's what led to the broad scale change of what the industry can do. And now, for example, in the contemporary world, the London planners uh, actually, because they were, it's quite an interesting story. There was a collective kind of a collective built out by thousands of uh, building design professionals called Letty, which is the London no, low, low emissions, <laughs> so many bloopers. Ah, it's I'll get it. I'll get it. London Energy Transformation Initiative, which is like this net zero carbon sort of collective of London professionals, they basically lobby and are producing response papers to things like the London Plan and to national policy initiatives, and they lobbied London, going well. One of the things that's really limiting our ability to. Uh, improve performance of buildings is the fact that the national regulations aren't appropriate. And essentially, it's a very, very technical point, but the national regulations assumed this grid carbon intensity figure of 500 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour, which is decades old. Not decades old, it's about a decade old, whereas the contemporary figure is about half that. What this means is that when you're assessing building technologies against a 500 figure, gas looks great because gas is about half of that as well. But if you assume that the grid is operating at around the level of gas, the only way to actually get reductions is to do something which is more efficient, which isn't using gas. It's using what are called heat pumps, which generate more heat than the energy electricity that's put into them because they shift heat from one place to another. And this actually reduces carbon emissions by about six times over a lifetime compared to installing gas. And you don't lock in fossil fuel usage. Well, that very small change, now no buildings in London that are being built, you know, large developments, commercial buildings, will have any fossil fuels in them, basically across the board. That could have been done a decade ago. And Briam didn't force that to change. It was done because when you have, this is how it has to be, but you get the change. Of course, the problem is you have to have the industry that can deliver on the change. We do have a heat pump industry. This has boosted demand by a certain amount and it will grow. Uh, and there is heat pumps you can get from a suppliers in Europe. There is actually an industry that can do it. So that's one caveat to that uh, policy point. Um, so yeah, I, I don't disagree with the state-led part of the Green New Deal. I think that is an essential part. The problem I have with is the notion that it's necessarily compatible with a capitalist mode of development going forwards. And this is my thing. When I say I think Briam is shouldn't be thrown away, I mean in the sense that it structures building practices. I think whatever economic system we have, there are going to be people designing buildings and they're going to use a set of skills and practices based upon the tech training they have. But I don't think Briam, in the mode in which it's being employed, gets us that much closer towards actually having a sustainable type of built environment development. public body but was then privatized sometime in the 90s and sort of spun off in this way do you think that 
nationalizing it again, so to speak, uh, would make it more easily aligned with the, the type of regulations that you're talking about, which are in many ways the actual force, so as to align the, the impactful regulations with the uh, body that structures practices. Possibly. It's the question of where does the research funding come from? Also, probably you could argue a question of control. This is why it's difficult to talk about this topic because there's so many different themes that can come up, and we haven't even mentioned this other theme. One part of the theme that I was trying to get across in the paper is um, Ulrich Beck's concept of... Um, risk society and reflexive risk, modernity. That's yeah, risk society and reflexive modernity. But also, one of his concepts was the idea that um, as you go into the way, the reason why, you know, to deal with the risk society and increasingly builds these large technical bureaucracies to manage these complex risks. And he argues that coming out of that, you end up with a, a, a politics that ends up being increasingly symbolic and non-material, whereas the actual real things that affect the material elements of society are hidden away in these technical bureaucracies that are managing these risks. And that's where society does not get access to in a political regime. It's outside of politics, you know. We demand sustainability, but we don't get to have any say on what the sustainability standards are or how they're made. And I think this is really true in the case of Briam, where why are there these credits? Why are the credits weighted this way? Why are these things as important in this, you know, why the way in which it's set up is one, art seems arbitrary, and is two, completely undemocratic. And so I think the question of which are, what are the most urgent sustainability requirements do vary from place to place. And it's not clear if that can be determined scientifically or if that's much more of a social question. And for example, for example, in a given area in California, obviously we know that water stress is an absolutely essential element of sustainability. And most buildings that are built have to have um, water recycling systems of various forms and grey water recycling, etc., and these kind of things. Whereas you wouldn't have the same kind of sustainability requirements in other parts of the US in the same way. Of course, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I think, yeah, I think the answer to this question is that maybe nationalizing, but I think most importantly, we need to try to sort of deal with this question of how do we bring some kind of uh, like some kind of democratic uh, control into the actual plumbing of these technical standards. How is this something that can be open to debate and discussion? And I think that's a really difficult question. They are technical standards. But I think in certain parts, it can be brought into a democratic realm. You know, how do you weight the importance of energy and carbon emissions to water, to putting some plants on the roof? I mean, these things could be weighed up. to kind of wrap up and bring this to a close. Um, 
one of the one of the points that you actually started out your paper with, which I really wanted to bring up, and I think is a good point to close on, is this idea that the ecological sphere is being separated and becomes its own separate sphere, um, which in some sense could be read as an ambiguous process in itself. Uh, isn't it good that we have an ecological conscience now, um, also separate from uh, moral or political or economic claims? But as you say, this ecological rationality conceives of the, in, in practice, conceives of the environmental problematic as primarily a, manage, a management and efficiency challenge. And that really reminded me of um, a really cutting sentence by Evgeny Morozov in his latest uh, Guardian column from the beginning of this year, where he says, Neoliberalism shrinks public budgets. Solutionism shrinks public imagination. And he really refers to solutionism and kind of being this sort of converting things into management and efficiency challenges. That's basically what solutionism is. Things that you can fix, things that you can find a solve for as the new techie language would have. And this, what he calls the good cop of solutionism, that after decades of neoliberal policy, solutionism has become the default response to so many political problems. The very terms in which one idea of problematizing or one way of problematizing this solutionist mindset has really ha has really gotten such a tight hold onto uh, both private and public uh, imaginations and that actually this this dynamic of finding fixes the solutionist dynamic in some ways is a way to find new productive opportunities no i think that's a really good point i mean part of the question of obviously definitely the environmental crisis is a question of imagination you know, we have to be able to imagine different forms of living that are radically different to how we live now. But I do think this interesting point about solutionism comes back because the other thing about the climate crisis is the constant lack of time that we supposedly have. Now, part of this is a framing of it. I remember there's a great talk by uh, Swingerdow, Alex the um, geographer goes, every 10 years or so, we're told by environmentalists, we've got 10 years left. In the 1970s, it's 10 years to go and we'll all be dead. And then 80s, 10 years, 90s, 10 years. Today, it's, uh, what is it, nine years. I think Joe Biden recently said, we've got nine years to tackle this thing. It's always a decade away before we all die, before the catastrophe. I think he's quite optimistic about his lifespan there. <laughs> he is, isn't he? He's very, <laughs> I mean, or, or maybe optimistic about the time span as well. I mean, <laughs> things aren't going so great in 2020. I mean, <laughs> but... The, the point that Eric makes in this lecture is not that that's wrong, it's just the fact that 10 years for who? And he goes, it was 10 years for some people in the 1970s, and they're not here anymore, or their communities aren't here anymore, then they've been washed away, or they've been destroyed. And, and actually, we are seeing the destruction and instability caused by climate change wreak its havoc on the world already into current politics, like the, the Syrian conflict, for example, um, the key igniter of the Syrian conflict was the mass migration of rural farmers into the cities because their crops had failed for three years in a row because of climate change. This was warned like about a decade before the conflict by a European research paper and the um, New England Center for Complex Systems of Bayam Ben Yam. Anyway, <laughs> but this this was um, warned to 
the EU and to a number of scientists, but people ignored the risk factors of it. And I'm not saying that was the entire sort of causal relationship here. There's many factors that led to um, that specific, um, as it were, Arab Spring event, as it was called at the time. And that was quickly, quickly uh, stopped being used, that, that language. But there's many other causes, but that is a, a significant trigger factor. So climate change is already wreaking these kind of havocs. So although this is one of the challenges of dealing with climate change, is although uh, this sort of like theoretical project of how do we conceptualize and imagine these kind of ideas, these new possibilities, is, I think, extremely productive and extremely important, we also have this intense time pressure that we all feel. We have to act now. Something has to be done now. And people feel that what's happening is not happening fast enough. And they are right. We're not happening fast enough. The rate of carbon emissions increase is increasing. You know, it's not that we're not increasing anymore. It's that we're increasing faster than we normally increase. And so, no, we are really moving in the wrong direction extremely quickly. There's a need for, as it were, actual solutions, actual solutions that will, will have an effect. And I think that's part of the challenge of, of, of operating in the environmental space discursively is you want to have, and I think it is very important to have uh, these more, as it were, as you say, more open reimaginings of the semiotic terms that we're dealing with. And I think that's essential. But it's also, you don't feel like you have time to do so. <laughs> was another episode of the three ecologies podcast thank you so much for listening we also want to thank again our friend and contributor gaetano fiorin for the music you can find more of his published music at soundcloud at gaetano fiorin